And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. 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 Hello and welcome everyone once again to the Earth Destruction Directive podcast. I am your host, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I'd like to welcome everybody to the show. Thank you for downloading and thank you for listening. And I hope everyone out there enjoyed our previous episode where we took a look at the Toho science fiction alien invasion epic, The Mysterians. And so I hope everybody uh, enjoyed that look at a little slice of the uh, 1950s (laughs) uh, alien invasion motif filtered through the Toho lens. we got a good episode for you today. We're going to be taking a look at a couple episodes of the original Ultraman series from 1966. We've also got the next issue in the ongoing saga of Marvel Comics' The Shogun Warriors. Uh, Up first, a little bit of news. Uh, First things first, the Zoo Ranger DVD set has finally been released by Shout Factory. Zoo Ranger, for those who may not know or may not remember, is the Super Sentai series which formed the basis of the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. So, uh, the traditional Power Rangers suits... The original Megazord, the Dragonzord, Green Ranger, Rita Repulsa, all of that came originally from the series Zoo Ranger. And now Shout Factory has released this complete series in subtitled form on DVD. You can go to Amazon.com by using the Amazon.com link at 2TrueFreaks.com and pick this one up. From everything I've seen, it's a really good set. I haven't picked mine up yet just because I'm waiting to put together an order on Amazon, but looks really good, and hopefully, fingers crossed, this will lead to more Super Sentai full series season sets from Shout Factory in the future. Uh, In other DVD news, my brother Jason has sent in a quickie guest review here talking about another DVD set which may be of interest. Uh, Jay writes, Sci-Fi Creature Classics Set Review. He goes, here is one of the set reviews I promised. Sci-Fi Creatures Classics 4 Movie Collection. This set features 20 million miles to Earth. It came from beneath the sea, the giant claw, and Mothra. Obviously, the last one is how this fits into Earth Destruction Directive, but this is a great set. Picked mine up for $4.99. It was $5.99 on the sticker, but was on sale at Michael's Arts and Crafts around Halloween, but if you dig deep enough in their DVD, in their DVD bin, you may still find one. Or an even better option for this show would be to get it through the Two True Freaks link through Amazon for $5.89. So, you may be asking, why is this such a great set? Both Harryhausen films look super crisp in 185-1 to anamorphic widescreen, uh, as good as any other release of these films. Plus, two great movies to boot. 20 Million Miles to Earth is one of my favorites since I was little. I just love the Ymir. And who doesn't love an octopus attacking San Francisco? The Giant Claw was the reason I bought this set, and man was I surprised with how great the film looks. 185 to 1 anamorphic widescreen as well, Giant Claw has only ever been available on DVD as part of the Icons of Horror Sam Katzman collection, which goes for $12.29 on Amazon. This is not a good movie effects-wise, but it is a classic for how bad it is. 
Now on to Mothra. The 235 to 1 widescreen letterbox is just great. Let me jump into Jason's review here and say that is uh, 235 to 1 is Toho Scope for those keeping score at home. Crisp colors and great sound. Mothra was available in the Icons of Sci-Fi Toho collection, 1027 on Amazon with the H-Man in battle in outer space. Any of these four movies are worth getting the set, but altogether this set is really easy sell. Hope this helps anyone on the fence about the set. Jason. Uh, Jay, thank you very much for this. Uh, this is a great sounding set. I mean, any one of these films is worth $5.89 on Amazon. All four of them together is just a bonus. Some of the reviews I've seen for this set kind of complain that, well, you know, you should already own 20 million miles to Earth and it came from beneath the sea. And that's well and good, but getting the giant claw for $5.89 is worth it. I mean, the giant claw with its crazy marionette bird monster. I mean, that's that's easily worth six bucks of your <laughs> of your hard-earned cash. Now, getting all of them together just makes it a nice bonus. Jay made specific mention about the Icons of Sci-Fi Toho collection, which had H- the H-Man, Battle on Air Space, and Mothra. Frankly, I'd get both of them. To be completely honest, because for the 10 bucks or so, the H-Man and Battle in Outer Space alone are worth that. You can always consider Mothra a throw-in. Or if you look at it the other way, 20 million miles to Earth, it came from beneath the sea in the giant claw for 589 and Mothra as a throw-in. Either one of those is worth it. Both of those uh, collections definitely worth picking up. I'm a very big fan of It Came From Beneath the Sea. I love uh, sea monsters, always have, and this giant octopus grabbing onto the Golden Gate Bridge is a classic. And as my brother says, we watched 20 Million Miles to Earth over and over as kids. So that those two Harryhausen films alone uh, would make it worth it. And having them in widescreen, and the thing about this, those two is they're both in black and white, and I find that... In black and white, the DVD format really does nice things. You know, in color, you've got, you know, there you could have a, a wider variety of color correction, oversaturation, undersaturation, brightness levels. But the black and white films, in my experience, for the most part, especially the genre films, just look really good on DVD because you get a good, um, you know, a, a good DVD player and a good TV with it, and those those blacks just look so deep, and the it really it just comes out super crisp. So I'm, I appreciate Jay sending this in because I'm definitely going to be picking that up as part of that aforementioned Amazon order that I am putting together. Uh, some other news, Ultraman Ginga S, the movie, going to be released to theaters right around the time I'm recording this in Japan on March 14th. The preview shows a whole lot of other Ultras in addition to the two regulars who are Gingastrium and Victory, including Zero, which was interesting because uh, Zero had not shown up in any of the Ginga stuff, so it's neat to see Ultraman Zero in there. We also get a preview of a merged form of Gingastrium and Victory, which is appropriately called Ginga Victory. Uh, thanks to Derek Crabb over at the Fanholes podcast and Sci-Fi Japan for this bit of information. Um, I'm looking forward to this if I ever can find it subbed. Unfortunately, the two fan subgroups that were doing um, Ultraman Ginga S have both kind of stalled out. So at this point, I'm pretty much waiting for the series to be completely released on Malay DVD, and I'll pick it up that way. What I've seen of Ginga S is fantastic. One last item here, this from uh, Diamond, the 1974 vinyl figural Godzilla bank. Uh, This is the latest in line of these vinyl figural banks from Diamond. Uh, This is sculpted by Gentle Giant Studios. It looks a whole lot like the Godzilla 74 suit, which was featured in Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla. An early episode of Earth Destruction Directive, I want to say episode 6, we covered that. Uh, It's 12 inches tall with a coin slot in the back. You can find this at all of your typical uh, Diamond Previews retail 
retailers, your local comic shop, or if you want to go online, you know, DCB Service or Midtown Comics or anybody that uses previews to order. For retails for $34.99, I'm really considering picking this up. I haven't gotten any of the other figural banks yet. This one is a full uh, full body, not a bust or like a half, like a, like a half bust or something like that. This is, you know, legs, tail, whole nine. So that alone makes it really neat. Uh, the Godzilla 74 suit is just, oh, it, it's goo all sorts of goofy with the big old head on it. The eyes are front set and, you know, big wide eyes. It almost looks like you could get two of these and make one of them look like the, um, uh, disguised Mechagodzilla <laughs> with a little bit of kit bash work, but I will leave that to, uh, others uh, better skilled in modeling than myself. Uh, that's all the news I got. If you've got any news or uh, reviews of any tokusatsu or daikaiju related stuff you want to send in, please go ahead and just email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com or you can hit me up on Facebook, earthdestruction as the first name, directive as the last name, and I will be sure to include it in the news here on the show. Uh, all right, I'm going to take a quick break. We're going to plug in a couple of podcast promos right here, and then we're going to be back with episode nine of Ultraman. The Fantastic Arse is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that taste forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler, and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2 in 1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? And we're back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Up first today, we are going to be taking a look at the next episode of the 1966 Subaraya Productions show, Ultraman. And our next episode is Episode 9. Episode 9 is entitled Operation Lightning Speed, or Operation Electric Stone Fire, or lightning operation depending on how you translate it and what source you go to in any event it was broadcast for the first time on september 11th 1966 on tokyo broadcast system and the episode is subtitled the appearance of uranium monster gabara in the aftermath of a strong typhoon rescue crews work hard to rebuild a bridge which was washed away in a small mountain community Similarly, a band of young mountaineering camping Boy Scouts have had their food supplies washed away, so the two older boys in charge set out on bike to get supplies from town. The workers are forced to flee when their site is invaded by the heavily armored monster Gabara, who burrows out of the ground. The monster makes quick work of the village and heads directly for the nearby uranium mines, and the science patrol is called in. Gabra is highly radioactive, and the JSTF uses flamethrowers to drive him away from the mines. But this puts Gabra directly in the path of the trapped boys at the campsite. The science patrol concocts a plan. Hayata will pilot a helicopter carrying a secured case of uranium, Gabra's favorite snack, and use it as a lure to bring him deeper into the mountains where he can be more safely engaged. 
Once airborne, Hayata discovers that Fuji and Hoshino have stowed away for... some... reason. The two are in for a wild ride, though, as Hayata leads Gabra like a dog through the mountains. From the sky, the science patrollers spot the two Boy Scouts, and, thinking quickly, Hayata lands and lets Fuji and Hoshino off to help the boys escape. Hayata then retakes off and tries to drop the uranium at the designated spot, and Gabra continues to pursue, opening up his face shield like a flower blooming to spit radioactive fire at the helicopter. Hayata ends up getting swatted out of the air by the enraged monster. Dodging Gabra, Hayata grabs his beta capsule and transforms into Ultraman. The giant hero takes the fight to Gabra, and the two grapple back and forth through the mountain forest. Ultraman succeeds in ripping off one of Gabra's face petals, and then another, and throws the monster hard onto the rocks. In shock, the beast convulses madly and dies. Later, the science patrol brings fresh food and supplies to the campers, and commends the two boys on their bravery and ingenuity in the face of danger. Pretty standard little episode of Ultraman right here. We get, uh, you know, a little bit of human plot, uh, action in the form of the Science Patrol taking plan, and Ultraman fighting a monster. So you can't really uh, ask for anything more than that. You know, uh, not the most creative episode of the entire series by a long shot, but certainly not the worst. Um, fun all, pretty much the entire running length and pretty quick moving. Um, so let's just get into some specific notes here. Right at the beginning, when uh, we're finding out about the typhoon that's causing the damage to the bridge in the in the mountains, Hoshino is the one who goes to flood control and gets the information. I'm reminded of something a friend of mine told me years ago um, when discussing the Gamera films, that apparently authority goes in reverse in Japan, and the younger you are, the more authority you have. Uh, why else would flood control give all the reports on the updated damages and uh recovery efforts to Hoshino rather than transmitting them directly to the Science Patrol. <laughs> Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Mostly done, I think, to get Hoshino into the episode. And Hoshino is, is he's not hes not really bad in this episode. We do get a lot of kid stuff with the campers and the two older kids who are in charge. And Overall, it, it actually plays fairly well for a you know, somewhat kid-centric uh, subplot. And Hoshino is not really offensive. He's kind of just there for the ride with Fuji for most of the episode. But I thought that was just strange. You know, they're asking, well, we don't have the new information on flood control. And Hoshino walks in with it. So just a little odd. When Gabara shows up at the uh, bridge site where the men are working, he is immediately na recognized and named, which suggests to me that this is either A, perhaps a local legend, or B, this is not the first time we've seen Gabra. This was his first appearance in the Ultra series, so I was a little confused by this. Uh, this gives you, um, you know, it's, I mean, it's a trope in, in Daikaiju films and TV that we just accept that the monsters have these creative names. In fact, they play with this a little bit in, uh, as we saw in um, Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah, All Out Giant Monsters Attack. But here it's just, it's, his name is Gabra, and we just accept it and we move on. It's, it's an economy of time here to tell our story, so let's not worry about it. Uh, when Gabra does come up um, initially, we get a quick little scene of some villages stomping. This is nice. Uh, it only lasts for not even a minute, but some really nice, simple scale model work on the village uh, buildings and huts. I really, you know, into the 60s and even some parts of Japan today, you can find, uh, you know, these very basic sort of uh, uh, communities that still exist in certain remote areas. So I thought that was a neat touch, and it showed it's not just always cities getting flattened, but sometimes people in the country as well. So I thought that was a nice touch. And it's a good little bit of uh, of effects work. 
Gabra eats uranium, and they make a specific point of name-checking the dangers of the radiation. Uh, this is not really surprising. This is 1966, so this is very typical for the era. Radiation is still the big bad, the evil um, unleashed by man uh, that, that they have to deal with. Uh, we wouldn't get into the pollution angle until really into the 70s. So here, right smack dab in the middle of the 60s, a monster that feeds on radioactive material and emits high levels of radioactivity is is to be expected. I specifically like that they uh, use uranium and not just the generic radioactivity. Um, we'd get this a couple of times in the series, and we'd see this more in uh, the, the the Daikaiju field at large, where they talk about cobalt or um, you know plutonium or uranium or whatever radioactive material in an effort to sound more scientific. And I, that sounds that works fine with me. Um, we do get a, a really neat little shot when the JSDF is preparing their flamethrower attack to repel Gabra. It's almost a little throwaway where we see a couple of uh, rear observers standing in the foreground of the shot holding their field glasses up and rear projected behind them is stock footage of JSDF armor rolling forward. It's actually composited really nicely. A lot of times with rear projection, you know, it, it's, you know, you get a kind of clear line of demarcation, so to speak, between elements, but whether it's because of the relatively low definition of this being shot for television in 1966, uh, or however it came together, it actually looks pretty nice, and it does a nice job of selling the depth of field between the observers and the armor. I thought that was, it's just a little scene, it, it does, you don't draw attention to yourself, but I noticed it when I was watching this, I was like, that's a, a really done little effect, and we get a couple of times through this episode where we get nice composite shots like that. Which is kind of amusing because I said a similar comment last time for the Mysterians, and it's like uh, Subaraya's crew was, was getting pretty good at these compositing of different elements and uh, making it look like it's taking place in one shot. So I thought that was a, a nice touch. We get to see Gabra pretty early on. He is once again a reuse of the Baragon suit, this time with once again a new head, as well as a sort of petal. He looks like a flower in bloom around his head. He's skin flaps. And the majority of the time in the episode, they are folded up over his face. So it looks like his face is armored or has a shield on it, almost kind of like a, uh, I don't know, some kind of a, a burrowing creature of some kind. And uh, But you see very clearly Baragon from the rear and from the side. You can see the scales running down his back, his tail, his legs all look much like Baragon. His new head that we see a bit later after the shield blooms, so to speak, looks, oddly enough, a little bit like Gamera because he's got a couple of uh, like saber-tooth teeth sticking up there. And he's got kind of the, just a round head, and the jaw shape looks a little bit like Gamera. So not sure if that was intentional or not. It, it is kind of an odd um, coincidence that the monster whose name sounds very much like Gamera uh, <laughs> ends up looking a little bit like him. But, um, you know, it's only so many names you can use for monsters. You just throw syllables together and go from there. Uh, Gamera has King Kong's roar from King Kong vs. Godzilla. So everything's kind of lining up lately here on Earth Destruction Directive. I don't know what's up with that. Um, they make a point that his armor on his face shield is five times stronger than steel. It's like, that is really, really cool. How do you know that? But again, we only have so much time to tell the story, so we just roll with it. Gabra is a, a good-looking monster. I think he suffers a little bit from being similar to Naranga and Magular and some other monsters that will come. That poor Baragon suit got trotted out so often, pretty much any time Tsuburaya needed a quadruped 
they would almost always go to the Baragon suit. There's a couple of instances where they don't, but it, it's used a lot. And I've said this before, you know, Baragon, I think Baragon would have been a bigger star over at Toho if not for the fact that Subaraya was almost in constant use of the suit uh, across the street over at Subaraya Productions. So, uh, you know, it didn't work out for Baragon, but it, it did create a number of monsters for Ultraman. So I guess in the end, it, it sort of balances out. The, the the big action sequence here involves Hayata flying the helicopter, and what the thing that I noticed really um, um, was amusing about this, the sound effect for the helicopter is one of the standard library Subaraya slash Toho helicopter sounds. Anytime there's a helicopter taking off and flying in the Ultra series or in the Godzilla series, this is the same sound effect, and this sound effect is one I've known since I was a little kid. It's featured very prominently in the tail end of Terror of Mechagodzilla, so anytime I hear it, it brings me back to being a little kid, specifically on the old Vestron video releases of the Godzilla films, I'm thinking specifically Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster and Godzilla vs. Monster Zero, the old Vestron video releases had uh, little, um, you know, others titles in our Godzilla series, and one of them was Terra Godzilla, and it featured this uh, sound effect of the helicopter starting up and taking off as part of that uh, little preview. So that's brings me right back to being four and five years old again every time I hear it. I absolutely love it. And and the chopper miniatures, and this is something I've, I've espoused numerous times, helicopter miniatures are tough to do because, you know, they have to move at a certain speed, but if they move too slowly, they look fake. If they move too quickly, they look fake. And they do an okay job with it here, considering it's a television budget, but it never really sells it as not being a miniature. It, it wobbles a little too much. It, it, the speed is a little off. But I will say what the effects guys do really well is matching the model with the live action helicopter. There's actually a decent bit of live action helicopter footage here, including a nice sequence where uh, the pilot, who is Hayata, is laying the landing the chopper down to let Fuji and Hoshino off, and he's trying to lay it down gently so as not to damage the dangling uh, canister of uranium. So there's, there's some really nice, you know, live footage of, of the helicopter here, so that's really appreciated. And, and it really does kind of sell the model a little bit. You know, the model, again, it doesn't look perfect, but, you know, we, we deal with what we can, especially with something hard like, like helicopters. You know, um, the Japanese seem to like helicopters to a degree. It's like, I, I, I was thinking about this when uh, I was looking at, like, the early Machine Robo toys, which is what became GoBots here in the States. You've got all these cars and tanks and jets and stuff, and then you've got one chopper, you know? <laughs> or in, um, if you want to go over um, uh, from Bandai to Takara and Hasbro in the Pretenders, you know, you had all these, uh, you know submarines and jets and spaceships and tanks and one helicopter you know <laughs> i think they feel that we have to have a chopper in there it's, you know it's, that'll satisfy the chopper uh, fans out there and we're, we're good to go so i said earlier about the composited and combined shots there's a really good one here during the helicopter chase sequence where we see the two uh, boy scouts in the foreground and they're looking up basically up a hill in between two outcroppings of rock and we see the helicopter zoom by and then Gabra chasing after it. It's actually really nicely done. Again, just compositing the two elements together, but they're they're combined in such a way that while we know how it was done, it is actually done very well and it looks very believable. And we there's a good depth there without the two uh, the two um, film tracks having 
very sim they have very similar quality so it's not like you can tell one is a second unit one's a first unit where it's scratchy or whatever like that but it actually comes together really nice it's again doesn't call much attention to itself it's a quick little shot but it really looks good and it's i think one of the kind of underrated strengths of the subaraya crew is that you know they to, to do these composite shots which sell the scale of everybody involved you know and that's an important thing obviously when you've got you know giant heroes and, and giant monsters and all that so uh, during the fight, Ultraman rides Gabara like a bucking bronco. Uh, I mention this mostly because it is hilariously awesome. He just grabs a hold of him and he just rides him around. And it's like, oh man, <laughs> that's that's a little humiliating if you're a monster, I think. Ironically, uh, just over the weekend I watched an episode of Ultra 7 that had a group of Japanese cowboys. I thought that was just a uh, co nice coincidental timing from that standpoint. Uh, during the fight, Ultraman rips off... Uh, two of the skin flaps, the petals that form uh, the kind of, you know, that form the face shield for Gabra. It's just, ouch, that looks like it hurts. You know, it's like all I can think of is when you've got like, um, you know, you've got like a little piece of skin, like a skin tag or something like on your on your finger or on your neck. And you try to rip that off. It's like the tiny little thing just hurts like heck. Cannot imagine the kind of pain that Gabra is in here. Um, also of note that Gabra dies after the two uh, flaps are ripped off, and then basically a judo-style uh, shoulder throw. There's no specium being used on him. So that early on, as we had seen earlier, they've, they've mixed it up a little bit, and it's not just fight for two minutes, you know, uh, alarm goes off, specium beam, fly away. They're trying to use different techniques and showing different uh, ways for defeating the monsters, which I thought was, was a nice touch and definitely was appreciated. Uh, as I said, overall, it's a standard episode. Uh, not particularly creative from a story standpoint, but it's a good repurposing of the Barragon suit once again. As I said, we had seen him for Naranga and Magular, and we would see it further uh, down the line as well. Uh, there's a good action. Uh, the whole sequence with the JSDF and the flamethrowers is nicely done, and the extended helicopter. Um, I say chase, which is essentially correct, because... Uh, um, you know, Gabra is chasing uh, <laughs> Hayata in the helicopter pretty much the entire time. So well put together. The monster fight is real nice at the end. I always applaud the fights not ending with just a specium beam, so I thought that was nice. It's not one of the best episodes. It's not going to necessarily stand out. Gabra is not a hugely popular monster, but it's certainly not it, it's certainly not one of the worst either. I mean, there, there are episodes of this show that get a little goofy, and this one is pretty straightforward, pretty standard, and, I, and there's something to be said for that. One of the things about not only tokusatsu, but anime shows as well, and um, we've touched on this, I shouldn't say we, I, I think I may have mentioned this uh, previously, but I know Gene, Gene, the podcasting machine, and Dr. Bill Robinson have touched on this on Anime Freaks, that when you've got a series that runs for a long time, you know, uh, 39 to, you know, maybe 52 episodes a season, you have episodes like this where it's just turn the crank. You know, it's a story engine and let's tell a story. Not everything has to be a world breaker. You know, Sean Engel and I, I think in our last Ultraman episode, we touched on this also, and I think I put it in the outtakes, that one of the, not so much problems, but I think sometimes that shows nowadays the modern sci-fi shows kind of handcuff themselves a little bit because they only have so many episodes to work with that every episode has to be a big important thing and push the overall plot. There's not as much space for just turn the crank story engine episodes anymore. And I think that, I mean, I can understand both sides of that storytelling coin. I think sometimes it's good to have your standard adventures so that when something is non-standard, it stands out more. 
and that's just me you know hey what do you guys think on that you know i'm, I'm interested to hear what the listeners think about as far as uh, story engines versus um you know overall arcs and all that but in any event uh this episode was a good one i mean you'll i think it's uh, you know something you can put on and watch and enjoy but it's not one that's going to stick with you necessarily as one of the best ones of the series but still good solid fun and uh really enjoyed watching it again I'm going to take a real quick break. We're going to come back with the second episode of Ultraman right here on Earth Destruction Directive. The tremendous energy which Ultraman gets from the sun diminishes rapidly in Earth's atmosphere. His warning light begins to blink. If it stops, Ultraman will never rise again. All right, we are back. The second episode of Ultraman we are taking a look at today is episode 10. Episode 10 of Ultraman is entitled The Mysterious Dinosaur Base and was broadcast initially on September the 18th, 1966 on Tokyo Broadcast System. The monster doctor known as Professor Nakamura makes his home at Lake Kitayama where he tends to his many animals, including the mysterious one named Jiris who lives in the lake. It seems that Jiris' eating habits are causing the fish to thrive at the lake, and Hayata, Ide, and Arashi of the Science Patrol are dispatched to investigate the sudden surge of marine life. After finding nothing unusual in a quick survey, Captain Muramatsu tells the three men to take the rest of the day off and enjoy some time at the lake. While the agents relax, Kubo, a reporter for Shonen Graph magazine and her cameraman, arrive to talk to Professor Nakamura. Kubo is working on a story about the Loch Ness Monster, and Nakamura relates a tale of one Dr. Nikaido, a colleague who, 15 years prior, was lost on an expedition to Loch Ness. Nakamura gets angry when the cameraman is caught using a hidden camera and throws the two reporters out. That night, while looking for Ide, Arashi and Hayata discover that he is out <coughs> night fishing with Kubo. But nothing suspicious is going up, as that is exactly what they are doing. Fishing. The pair, while fishing, spot the professor rowing back to shore and decide to investigate. Marking their path with a little adhesive wayfinder that Ide has attached to his boot, they make their way inside the professor's strange laboratory, but are caught, and the professor smashes Ide's communicator when Hayata and Arashi try to get in touch with him. The next day, fishermen using fish poison to catch loads of fish in the lake attract the attention of the monster Jiris, a frilled bipedal dinosaur. Meanwhile, Ide has been able to fix his communicator using a hairpin from Kubo and gets in touch with his fellow agents. Ide and Kubo are rescued as Jiris makes his way to shore. Arashi is able to use the spider shot to keep him at bay until it runs out of power, but Professor Nakamura screams for his dinosaur to go wild and smash everything in his path. Accused by Kubo of not honoring the memory of Dr. Nikaido, Nakamura rips off a mask to reveal himself as the doctor himself. Long thought dead. He says that he found Jiris in Loch Ness and raised him into the beast he is now. Jiris stomps onto the land, trampling the doctor in the process, as Hayata finds a secluded spot to become Ultraman. The two tussle, each trying to prove how tough they are through demonstrations of their strength. But soon that's over, and it's time for combat, and the two giants clash. Ultraman rips off Jiris's frill, which seems to make the monster even madder. 
The two square off for one last strike. A super-fast chop from Ultraman deals the killing blow to Jiris, who collapses from his injuries and dies. In respect, Ultraman lays Jiris' frill over his fallen foe, while nearby, Dr. Nikaido draws his last breath, sharing his creature's fate in death. Ooh, this one is uh, one of the one of the more memorable from the early ha- part of the series, and uh, a lot of that is due to Jiris. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to get into that in just a minute. But uh, good episode, uh, really solid. Some some strange ep- elements in it, but overall, I think it's a really good uh, a really good installment. So let's get into the notes. The episode opens with lots of creepy crawlies, insects, reptiles, and uh, all sorts of other animals shot in um, you know in weird positions inside the laboratory, climbing around in bowls and in beakers and in petri dishes and all sorts of stuff. It wouldn't look out of place in a, a horror movie, and, and that's appropriate because Professor Nakamura looks like a mad scientist from like a 1940s USB horror movie. He's got the the lab coat, the glasses, the wild hair. If Dr. Bill Robinson was Japanese, he might look like Professor Nakamura. So um, it, it's it's a really nice kind of creepy opening with Nakamura talking to himself about the various animals and then talking about Jiris, his, uh, his you know pet who lives in the lake, and we get a, a nice shot of the water uh, burbling and roiling out on Lake Kitayama. I've spoken before about how I love this trope because you know if the water starts burbling, something is under that water. It's either a monster, most likely, or occasionally a UFO. So in, the, in this case, it's of course a monster. When the science patrol is dispatched to Lake Kitayama, there is a, a really nice shot we see of the jet VTOL who has got the S-2 submarine attached underneath, flying over the lake. So we're looking down on the jet VTOL as it flies over the lake uh, and the forest. Just a really, really nicely done miniature shot here, combining the uh, you know, the minis of the, um, the jet VTOL and the sub, and then the set, and just a rural set piece here of the lake and the surrounding forest. It really looks nice. It's, and again, it, this may be, like I said in the previous episode, you know, to do with the, the level of definition that we're look, watching this at on standard definition from a TV show from, you know, 1966. But it really does, I mean, it looks really sharp, and it looks really well done. So it really does sell the the overall appearance of them flying over this environment. It doesn't look like a model. It looks like a nice, uh, you know, like a, like a real shot, so to speak. Speaking of which, I always like when the S-2 submarine shows up. It's one of my favorite of the Science Patrol vehicles. I like that it's not forced into every episode, but when they need to examine something under the water, they bring out the S-2. It uh, just really nice little classic, you know, uh, atomic-style submarine from the late 50s or early 60s. Also, it gets to break out one of another one of my favorite sound effects from the stock library. When uh, the S-2 uses its sonar wave, it is the sound effect used by the X-Aliens in um, Monster Zero to pull <laughs> Godzilla and Rodan out of their sleeping spots with their UFOs. So, that's a very scientific uh, reproduction of the sound there. Also neat that it does, it, that's apparently the sound for waves, because the it's a, it's a wave that picks up Godzilla and Rodan and Monster Zero, and it's sort of a wave of sonar here, so nice touch there. When Kubo and her cameraman go to see the professor, there's a big discussion about the Loch Ness Monster. And this struck me as just something I've noticed over the years, that the Loch Ness Monster seems to be something of a minor fascination for genre fans in Japan, much the same way it is here in the West. I think the idea of a prehistoric monster still living in this strange and mysterious part of the world in today's environment 
I think that holds a lot of uh, a lot of interest for genre fans, and especially appropriate for this show, which deals with monsters from a bygone era coming back into the modern age. Um, Loch Ness in the flashback looks vaguely jungle-like. I'm willing to chalk that up to you know just you know don't necessarily have you know uh, Scottish moors that you can go <laughs> shoot on in the back lot in uh, in uh, Tokyo, but you know that's fair enough. Uh, but uh, it just said the whole little discussion about um, the idea of the Loch Ness monster and dinosaurs surviving to the modern day, I thought was just really appropriate, and it mirrors things I've seen in other um, both Western and and Eastern productions involving the Loch Ness Monster. Two that popped immediately into my head um, were Legend of Dinosaurs and Monster Birds, which Chris Honeywell and I covered a long time ago on The Media Masochist. Again, a film dealing with the idea of dinosaurs coming back into the modern day and specifically using a plesiosaur uh, as a sort of nod, homage, reference, whatever, to the Loch Ness Monster. The other one that I thought of was the unproduced film Nessie, and I, I don't know if I've brought this up here before, but let me just get into it really, really briefly. Nessie was... Uh, a proposed co-production between Hammer Studios and Toho in the 1970s. Uh, during the early to mid-70s, Hammer announced lots of films that never made it past a conceptual stage. Nessie was one of these. It would have been a mod- set in the modern day and featured uh, Nessie rising up out of Loch Ness, terrorizing the Scottish countryside, then going out to sea and eventually destroying an oil rig and you know, having various uh, encounters with the military. Now, Hammer was going to handle all the, um, the the first unit stuff, all the the actors and uh, you know places that the humans were going to interact with, and then Toho was going to do all the effects work, all the second unit stuff. And Toho went so far as to actually build a prop for Nessie, and then Hammer, you know, before any production was begun. I mean, there was some pre-production begun. I know principals of the cast and uh, crew had been at least. Um, if, if not actually begun work had been assembled and uh, but the film was eventually canceled without any film being shot and uh, so the prop sat unused for years <laughs> in the Toho backlot eventually getting used in a uh, Orochi film as a sea serpent uh, much later on in the in the in the 90s yeah, I'm, like, I'm gonna get the name wrong if I say it this was the same film that used um, a modified King Ghidorah suit as the Orochi, as the eight-headed dragon. Uh, if you go to ToaKingdom.com, you can find all this information out. But Nessie, to me, is one of those great lost projects that I would have loved to seen. I'm a big fan, obviously, of Toho's uh, monster output, but I'm a big fan of um, Hammer's monster output as well, monster and horror output from the you know, 50s, 60s, and 70s. So would have been neat to see their take on an East meets West sort of uh, monster film. Hammer had done something somewhat similar on an East meets West, East meets West standpoint, easy for me to say, uh, and the film Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, which was a combination of a Hammer Dracula film and a Shaw Brothers Kung Fu film fighting Chinese uh, vampires. So <laughs> check that one out. That is a that's a hoot. That's a great one. But in any event, uh, that talking about the Loch Ness monster, that's where my mind went, and I thought it was appropriate uh, use in this episode, considering the themes of a dinosaur being revived in the modern day. Um, while we're at the resort at the lake, we do get some great background uh, shots, especially for me. There's some classic pinball tables on display. Uh, not enough are seen of the back glass and I could identify them, but I'm going to take a look at them again and take a run through the uh, internet pinball database, 
which is I think is IPDB.org. I, I may be wrong on that, but it's you look up Internet, Internet Pinball Database, you can find it. And I'm a big pinball fan, so seeing these classics ones from the 50s and 60s always makes me smile. We also get to see a really neat slot racing set that uh, some people are running off camera, but we see, uh, you know, Arashi come and look at it and talk to uh, the, one of the guys working at it. So that was really neat. Just, you know, it's just old-fashioned stuff like that. It's, it's like a time capsule. I've said this before. We've seen the old cars and fashions and things like this is really brings you back, especially for me, because I wasn't alive during those periods. So seeing the recreational equipment, the pinball tables, the slot machines, stuff like that, it, it really makes me smile, you know, because it's... It's a it's a way to look back on something that you weren't there to see. I really enjoy that. Ide, the ladies' man. We get to see Ide making the moves on Kubo, taking her night fishing. I wonder if when he suggested night fishing, if she knew that he meant to go angling at night. I don't, you know, I'm putting it out there. You know, I'm making no judgments either way. But you know, um, Kubo herself, she has kind of the classic Toho reporter girl look. She's got a you know, a suit and a hat, and uh, you got to appreciate that. Um, you know, uh, Subaraya didn't treat his ladies quite as nicely as uh, Honda did over at uh, Toho as far as making them, uh, you know, not just damsels. Kubo is a, is a reporter, but she isn't all that useful. Her main uh, thing she brings to the table is that she has a hairpin because it's 1966 and all women have hairpins. And Ide, being the technical genius, is able to uh, fix his communicator using said hairpin. So I thought that was neat. The other bit of technology that Ide breaks out is not really technology, but it's still pretty neat. When they're trailing the professor, he unzips his boot and pulls out a little uh, sticky marker in the shape of the Science Patrol logo, and he marks the tree so that he knows the path they were taking. I thought this was a low-tech but you know pretty intelligent thing to do. You're in the middle of a forest at night. How are you going to mark your way? You have a marker. Well, of course, the Science Patrol is prepared for this. They're prepared for everything. I thought that was a nice little touch, and it does come back. Danide says, I've marked the path with, my, with the marker. So I was like, okay, well, it actually does complain to the story. So good work there. Uh, the two guys on the lake fishing with poison. It's a white powder that they throw into the, the lake. Rodnok from Creature of the Black Lagoon, perhaps? I'm just saying, you know, this is about a uh, prehistoric monster that lives at the bottom of a lake. And, you know, that's Creature in the Black Lagoon and the Rodnok. And I don't know that Rodnok actually looks that way. I've, I've, I've read in other places, in other, like in... Um, Oh, it's the Hildebrand rarity by uh, Ian Fleming. He talks about Rodnoke, and it's like an oily black substance, not the white powder. I guess that wouldn't show up in a black-and-white film like Creature from the Black Lagoon, but that's where my mind goes. I love the Creature from the Black Lagoon, so you have to excuse me on that one. We got to Jiris's reveal. Man, he looks familiar. <laughs> There's really not much you can do with it, because it is the Godzilla 64 suit with the Godzilla 65 head on it, and then they put a frill around his neck, and they spray some yellow paint on his belly. The yellow paint seems to continually wear off as the episode goes on and of course when Ultraman rips the frill off by that point he looks just like Godzilla and uh, there's not you know that is what it is when you see any great picture online of Ultraman versus Godzilla it comes from this sequence here um, basically this happened as almost as a, an accident of sorts you know they needed a suit that could work the other plans they had fell through. This was done. He's like, hey, can you do this a favor? And so they, they helped him out. And so that's why. Basically, Jiris had to be destroyed without any damage being done to these underlying suits because they needed them back for effects work. So uh, it, it, it works out, though, because Jiris is a very memorable monster because he looks like Godzilla. 
you know, his uh, personality is, is not that great. He just kind of comes on rampages and then they have their kind of odd show off test of strength thing before they fight. And I'll get into that in a minute, but his look has cemented him as one people remember just because it's Godzilla. You know, it's essentially just Godzilla. Heck, even Shag noticed that. And if Shag noticed it, you know it's got to be pretty blatant. So, um, and, he, and, and the putting the frill on him makes him look kind of like a, a Dilophosaurus from Jurassic Park. You know, uh, in fact, I remember when the Dilophosaurus came out, I said, hey, that looks kind of like Jiris, but, uh, you know, that's just me. We get another really good combined shot after Jairus makes his reveal, um, where he is coming towards the shore, and we see the car pull up in front of him. Uh, just again, another really nicely composited shot, and the Subaraya crew seems to be really hitting their stride with the effects at this point, which is not surprising because they've been doing, this is episode 10, they've been doing it for a couple of months now, getting really into, um, you know, the, the ins and outs of television production every month, or every week, I should say, the way that this was doing. Uh, the professor says that Jiris was created, and that he created Jiris, and they don't go into what exactly he means by that, but to me this is another good use of kind of hand-waving at the idea that no mon- no dinosaur ever looked like this. No dinosaur was ever this tall and walked upright like a, like a human and had a frill on his neck like this, so maybe this was a dinosaur that the professor did some mucking around with and made into a monster. You know, uh, so I, just him, him saying that, it also ties very nicely uh, to him wanting to see his monster rampage and destroy because it was his creation. It doesn't help him any because he gets trampled, but, you know, I can understand the motivation. Anyhow, um, we get to reveal Professor Nakamura is Dr. Nikaido. It's kind of a strange plot twist overall, because I really like Professor Nakamura. He was this crazy, campy, ridiculous, uh, mad scientist character, and Nikaido is a little more serious, but he's still he's still quite insane. I mean, you can see from the eyes, he's, he's nutballs bonkers, and there's no question about it. I can understand the plot reasoning here, though, because... Why does Nakamura know about what happened, and why does the uh, Kubo come and ask him about Dr. Nikaido unless he is Dr. Nikaido? So I can I understand from a plot standpoint, uh, it doesn't really, it doesn't add that much to the, the reveals. Like, oh my gosh, you know, it's not one of these shocking reveals, because it's, it, you know, at the end of the day, it's not like Nakamura was a good guy and now he's a bad guy. He's a bad guy, just he's somebody else who we thought was dead, so... Arashi gets to use his spider shot here against Jiris, and it's a couple of good sequences where he keeps Jiris at bay until Hayata can turn into Ultraman using the spider shot. It's still not quite his trademark weapon as it would become later on in the series, but good to see it here, and I like the spider shot. And uh, It's interesting that we're starting to see a little bit of the personalities develop. Ide repairs his communicator because he's the technical expert. Arashi is the weapons expert, so he gets to use the uh, the spider shot. So the little things like that that would uh, grow as the series progressed. The fight itself between Ultraman and Jiris is is really unusual because it's a, definitely a mixed bag. At the beginning of it, the two taunt each other back and forth. Ultraman pounds his chest almost like a, a sumo fighter. Um, Jiris picks up a boulder and blasts it with his beam, and so Ultraman counters by throwing two boulders and blasting them both with his specium ray. Um, at one point when Jiris roars at, at Ultraman, Ultraman waves his hand in front of his face like he's got bad breath. So it's, and at one point, Ultraman laughs at Jiris. <laughs> Sounds almost like Bolton, actually, which is a little strange when you think about it. So I mean, it, it's almost like it's played for laughs, the, the most of this fight. And then he rips the frill off, and the frill comes right off. 
they have the decency at least of painting the neck port underneath it red so it looks like blood and then they do a matador routine where Jiris charges at Ultraman several times and he goes ole you know he doesn't actually say ole at least I guess you know we could thank a shit for small miracles there but um, so again but it doesn't take the fight very seriously it's only at the end of the fight when the tone changes dramatically and after you know charging at the frill and falling down a few times Jiris just gets up and you can see he is pissed and the two of them just stare each other down and it turns into essentially the end of like a samurai film where the uh, you know the the two fighters will charge at each other and there's that super click slash and we don't know who slashed whom this is I mean, this is so common in anime that it's become essentially a trope, but it started out in the uh, the period films and the samurai films. And uh, so here we get that, where they, they charge at each other, and there's a slash, and then they're standing there, and it's very, very creepy almost, because we see this close-up of Jiris, and his eyes, you know, being from the Godzilla suit of that era, they're, they're just dead eyes, they're like a, a lizard's eyes. And we see the blood begin to trickle out of his mouth very slowly, and then we cut to a wide shot, and he collapses. And it's and then you know that so that's a complete 180 degree tonal shift from what we had gotten already in the fight with the two of them kind of almost acting like you know professional wrestlers or you know just just really kind of hamming it up a little bit and here it 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 does very very brutal end to the fight here and then Ultraman takes the frill and lays it over him like a funeral shroud and I've I've heard different takes on this the one that I subscribe to is the one that I've heard most commonly that this was done out of a sign of respect because it was clearly Godzilla at that point that Ultraman just killed and Subaraya did not want to invoke bad luck by having his television star kill the uh, the Golden Goose over at Toho so he paid him a a tribute and treated you no know, didn't blast him with the specium beam and anything like that you know killed him in an honorable strike and then you know honored his dead foe with the a shroud so I mean the uh, I I like the ending of the fight. I really like as I called Jir. My note was Jiris's quiet death, and I thought it was it was a very touching little scene here of of Jiris you know getting his, but it just doesn't jive with the rest of the fight, and it makes it it makes it a little odd in watching. And then the very end where the Doctor shares the fate of his monster and they both die. It's like, well, yeah, go buy some, uh, go buy some vinyl monsters, kids, because <laughs> you know we we just killed this dude and uh, and the monster too, so have fun. Uh, but uh, it's a good ending, and as I said, the ending I think redeems some of the the sillier aspects of the fight itself. But this episode is, pr- I'm not going to say probably, this episode is best well known for the reuse of the Godzilla suits as Jiris, but it's a pretty good episode in its own right. The Mad uh, Professor makes a really good, if, as I said, kind of campy human villain. And his relationship with Jiris, it's unique for the series at this point. It's thought-provoking, the idea that he created this beast and wants him to destroy. And his connection and his obsession with dinosaurs and prehistoric life. The scenes of Jiris in and around the lake are really nicely done from an effects standpoint. They do a good job of selling him as a menace. You know, him uh, menacing the fishermen or him hiding from the science patrol, things like that. Uh, but the episode is somewhat derailed by the strange approach to the final battle, with, uh, like I said, them acting almost like wrestlers for a bit. The end of the fight saves it. Um, you know, it's it's just a great finish with the, like I said, the samurai-style showdown between the two enemies. Uh, the most poignant of the battles so far that we've seen, and the frill shroud sequence is very memorable. Um, I think even 
minor Ultraman fans who are just fans of Tokusatsu in general are aware of that scene. It's just very well known. It's a really good, strong episode, a great unintentional cameo from the King of the Monsters. One of the better ones of this early run, I think, and definitely a memorable foe, if not one who would re- reappear very often. Uh, Jiris does go on to show up, I think, in Zone Fighter, but he is not, at that point, a Godzilla suit. He looks more like a regular Tyrannosaurus with a different style frill. Uh, but this version of Jiris, very memorable and um, definitely a, a memorable showdown with Ultraman, despite some of the peculiarities of the uh, the actual fight itself. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and we will be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Imagine you enter the world of the Shogun Warriors. They're on the move. There's Raideen with Delta Wing missiles, Dragoon with a Star Shooter, and Mazinga with a rocket launcher. The Shogun! Imagine you command them to defend freedom, protect justice, and challenge Edo. The Shoguns! They're ready to strike when you are. Shogun warriors, Mazinga, Dragoon, Raideen, equipped with their own gear, each sold separately from Mattel. All right, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive, and now we're going to take a look at Marvel Comics Shogun Warriors number 17. Shogun Warriors 17 was cover dated June 1980 and was released on or about March 4th, 1980. As usual, these dates come from Mike's Amazing World of Comics, which you can find at dcindexes.com. Our writer is Doug Mensch, penciler Herb Trimpey, inker is Mike Esposito, our letterer Mark Rogan, Colorist is Carl Gafford. Editor is Louise Simonson. Editor-in-chief is Jim Shooter. And our story is entitled, The Juggernaut. After the destruction of the Shogun Sanctuary last issue, the Shogun pilots must address the immediate need of hiding the Shoguns from prying eyes. Ilongo Savage takes off in Dangard Ace for Madagascar, where an undersea cavern will be the perfect location. Richard Carson and Genji Odashi head for the west coast of the United States, specifically San Francisco, California. There, the pair locate an abandoned, condemned high-rise, and with some creative application of Combatra's weapons, the building is soon hollowed out to serve as Combatra's garage. The pilots head back to the Hollywood Hills in Rydeen, who is hidden amidst the forest. Richard and Genji then head for Richard's house, only to find a cranky Dina not thrilled that Genji is back again. Back in the city, the Velez family is seeking shelter and happen upon the abandoned building. Checking out the inside, their oldest boy, Enrique, stumbles upon Combatra. To make matters worse, a shimmer tube malfunction draws the youth into the cockpit. In his struggle to get out, Enrique accidentally launches Combatra, and the Shogun streaks across the sky, weapons blasting randomly. At a movie shoot, Richard and Genji hear about the runaway robot and spring into action. Richard runs to retrieve Raideen, while Genji takes off on motorcycle to check on the building. There she finds the Velez family and learns that Enrique is trapped inside Combatra. Enrique's parents tell Genji that he might head to the airport, a place he always loved, so Genji speeds through the panicked, traffic-choked streets out to San Francisco International. At the airport, Raideen arrives just in time to get battered by Combatra, still flailing and attacking randomly. A stray blast hits a docked oil tanker, and Carson has to pull it onto shore to stop the oil from spilling out into the harbor. Genji then forces her way into the control tower and radios Carson with a sit-rep. Now aware that the pilot has no ill will, the two Shogun pilots put their heads together to figure out a way to get him down. 
but time is not on their side. A passenger jet is too low on fuel to try for an alternate landing site and has to try to land at SFO, but Combatra has target locked on it. As the giant machine and the jet come ever closer, the Shoguns make their move. Riding converts to Firehawk, and then blasts Combatra in the head, forcing the Delta V module with Enrique inside of it loose. Riding catches the module, and then everyone is safe. The pilots reunite Enrique with his family, and though the future is uncertain, the day, for now, is saved. Next issue, The Chaos Wars. After last issue's real big game changer, this is sort of a catch-your-breath story. It's not bad overall, though, but a really kind of a bit of a uh, decline from the previous issue where we had the, the, the big changes. This is really kind of a simple one-and-done story. Uh, but I'll get into the notes now. Our cover is by Trimpy, but it really doesn't look like him. His depiction of riding in the cover is, is very unusual for Trimpy. It doesn't look like he his normal depiction of riding. So at first I wasn't sure this was Trimpy, but uh, the credits I looked up said that Herb Trimpy and Mike Esposito did the cover, so I'm willing to go with that. Kind of a reverse of the normal Shogun Warriors covers, with a large human figure in the foreground and no small human figures for scale. Probably the best part of the cover is the copy. It's got some really amusing cover copy. It says, you're a kid, you're flying a Shogun, and it's really fun, right? Wrong. <laughs> that amused me. I, I noticed that the, when I first got these issues, uh, I, when I bought them off of eBay a while back, I remember thinking that cover really stood out just for the copy. Now, page one is our splash page. It's fairly unremarkable, pretty standard. Um, we see... Um, the over-the-shoulder of Combatra and, and riding in the foreground as Dangard Ace takes off and he takes up the majority of the image. It is nice to see Dangard Ace for this issue. That's the only time we see him. We don't get any dialogue from uh, from Elongo Savage and it's, you know, just this little cameo for Dangard. So at least we do get to see him. Turning over now to page 6, panel 7. Um, after they, after Genji and Richard hide Combatra, they head back home to Richard's place, and there's this really, just, it's a nice panel of riding, hiding amongst the trees in the Hollywood Hills, and all of it visually comes together in that panel. The pencils are really nice, the inks, the murky blackness, both among the trees and the shadows that cover riding, and then the green and the brown of the trees uh, from the color, they all look really nice. It's a very moody little panel. It, it, you know, it just serves a story, simple storytelling purpose, showing us where Rydeen is, but it's really nice. It's a very nice little panel. Page 7. Dina James is still not happy with Richard at all, but she's also confused. You know, she, she complains that he's hanging out with that cute Genji, but she's like, well, I thought I was over this whole thing. And finally, when he, uh, when he comes in, she just, says, uh, she just goes to bed, and he says, not now, Richard, not now. Uh, she must really love Richard to put up with his nonstop crap. I mean, it's been one thing after another since we first met Dina way back when, uh, after the, the fight with um, the mech monster, when, you know, he introduced her to this whole world that she has now become a part of, whether she wants to or not. I, I really feel for Dina here, uh, but she doesn't get much to do in this story, unfortunately, other than to play the uh, jealous card once again. Here we now to page 10, um, panel 6 through 10 on that page. Uh, it shows Enrique in the abandoned building and encountering Combatra and finding him. Basically, they, they dig a giant hole in the ground, so at the ground level is just Combatra's head sticking up. 
Uh, and it's panel six is a great shot of the perspective again, where we see the size of Enrique versus the head of Combatra. It's mostly he mostly comes up to right below his nose. So again, good job with the scale. Scale's been an important part of this series. Anything to deal with a giant robot or giant monsters, it is. So it's a nice little sequence here of Enrique getting too close and slipping off the edge. And then the shimmer tube coming to, uh, powering up to bring him up. It's a nice little bit of storytelling from Trimpy. On the next page, panel 11, or excuse me, page 11, panel 5, uh, we've got a really narrow panel, maybe about a quarter of the width of the page, but it's the entire height. And it shows, um, Combatra blasting off through the roof of the, uh, of the abandoned building with the, uh, you know, the jet contrail smooth, uh, you know, um, swooshing out behind us, I'm trying to say. Um, another well-put-together panel, really nicely colored. Uh, great to have Carl Gafford back as the uh, colorist. I mean, it really looks fantastic, all yellows and oranges, and then, uh, you know, a little bit, and, and just really bright colors. You can really picture this in your mind. The inking is nice, too, because it's really, it's not super um, clean on the inking. There's a really rough spot to show the blast over the air as the jets kick on here. Really nice panel here. Turning over now to page 16, panel 8, uh, I just mentioned Carl Gafford, and this is what originally, this panel is a good showcase of what I originally had started mentioning Carl Gafford's work on this series way uh, earlier on, and it's glad, to, um, um, it's good to see him back here, because in this is a, in this panel where Combatra just kind of is flailing his arms around and he decks writing right in the face, but the coloring here is, on the impact, is fantastic, because, you know, uh, writing we see we're looking kind of at the right side of his head, so his left hand is pushing into the background, and we see Combatra's right fist, kind of, you know, like a right hook coming right at uh, Rydine's jaw. So the background is all just like basically an orange explosion, and then Rydine's, uh, from basically his right forearm up to his hand, is bright yellow, with lots of uh, inking, some crosshatch inking on there by Mike Esposito. And... I've said this previously, the coloring on this when Carl Gafford's working on it really does a great job of selling the violent impact of these, um, you know, the, the robots clashing or robots fighting with the monsters, and it's a good one here. It's just nice to see because, you know, I think it really brings to life the uh, the action. This is a bright, colorful book with bright, colorful robots in it. So I like the uh, you know the, the use of the the coloring to really bring out the uh, the clang, if you will, of the heavy metal smashing into each other. And I don't know that this would look as nice in the black and white, but in the color, it really does pop, and I really do appreciate it. Turning over now, page seventeen, panels two through three. Um, during the fight here, Combatra launches a disc off of his ankle, and then it flies out and hits <laughs> Riding like Captain America throwing his shield. It's even red and curved like Captain America's shield. That's really cracked me up. Great bit of onomatopoeia in panel three. Fwacked! F-W-K-A-T, uh, as, uh, Riding gets smacked right in the chest with the, <laughs> with the, these ersatz Captain America's shield. Uh, then finally turning over to page 30, the first panel. This is a, um, a short panel. It's only about uh, maybe a quarter of the height of the page, but it's the entire width of the page. We see the Air Canada jet that was the one that was running out of fuel trying to land, uh, and it's in front of, um, of San Francisco International, but it's standing behind the airport is Rydine, and it's funny, the control tower comes up just to Rydine's knee. Uh, if you're familiar with the robot Rydine, you know he's got these big blue... 
like from his knee down is these big blue like um they look like bell-bottom pants almost and it comes up right to the top of them just to get a good idea on the height of uh, of riding versus the airport here and then uh the delta v module basically combatra's head sitting on the ground kind of a sconce uh beneath it um it's an average issue no great shakes definitely a letdown after last month's story it's not bad like I said, you know, sometimes after you have these, you know, big narrative-changing epics, you need to take your breath, take a breath a little bit. It's a little disappointing knowing there's so few issues left in the series that we have to take the time for this. It, you know, it's it's kind of just a one-off side story here. It's okay. It doesn't really have much to say. It doesn't really advance the narrative other than you know pushing the um, the shoguns to find, you know, that they have to take care of their own machines now um, in the first half of the story. Uh, it's it's all right. Uh, the next issue with the tease of the Chaos Wars obviously sounds much more promising from an action adventure standpoint. So looking forward to that. Um, we do get the the Warrior Dispatch letters page. Is no no neither of the letters are really all that interesting. They're just kind of uh, praising uh, the crew. They're talking about Shogun Warriors number twelve. So uh, as far as ads, uh, let's see. Going through here. Uh, we get 100-piece toy soldier, bubble yum, kind of the standard ads from the time. Uh, this is an interesting one from Atlantic Products. It says, Take Command, Make Strategic Decisions, New HO Scale Historic War Games. So I've seen these on Board Game Geek. Um, there are five, basically, well, they, the ad here, they have five different battles you can choose from. They're little uh, square grid games. You got uh, 1942 at El Alamein, 1945 in Okinawa, 1942 in Stalingrad and then Ardennes and Casino as well. And that they also have ones for the Old West, uh, including Custer's Attack on the Cheyennes at the Washita River, Fetterman Massacre, Adobe Wells, Apache Pass, and Little Bighorn. That's pretty neat. I've never played any of these. I imagine they're they're pretty um, basic little, uh, you know, roll-and-move uh, type games, but uh, they're interesting to see. It's, and it, it is, it's recommended for ages 8 and older. I think most of the time now, with any type of war game, they usually say recommended for 16 and older. Couple page further in, we get a nice full page ad from Heroes World, once again selling toys, but this time, half the page is dedicated to Buck Rogers, and this is clearly Buck Rogers in the 25th century, the Gil Gerard, uh, excuse me, Gil Gerard, Gil Gerard vehicle. It says, authentically styled and fully poseable, these three and three quarter inch movable action figures are perfect for your own space adventures with Buck and his crew. Choose from Buck Rogers, Twiggy! Draco, Tiger Man, Draconian Guard, or Killer Kane. And we also have uh, a couple of vehicles. They have the uh, the Starfighter or the Draconian Marauder. These are pretty neat. Um, although Twiggy, no way he was three and three quarters. He's, he's pretty short. The other half of the page is for the Lord of the Rings toys. And I'm not sure, 1980, would this have been um, the, the animated film, Lord of the Rings? Was that out at this point? The, I think it was Ralph Bakshi. I'm I'm not sure, but the straight out of Tolkien's fantasy world of fantasy are these perfectly detailed replicas of his imagination. So maybe it is straight just from the books. A must for every Tolkien fan. Choose from Gollum, Samwise, Frodo, Gandalf, Aragorn, Ringwraith, and the one everybody wants, Frodo's horse. <laughs> um, Aragorn looks. I don't know. He does. He he's wearing like a kilt. I don't know. And uh, the ring race look pretty cool. They look kind of like um, like you would expect them to look in the 80s. Gandalf looks the same. Gollum looks like um, he looks like a goblin more than anything else. Just a interesting uh, ad here. I, I've never had any of these toys, so I'm not familiar, familiar with these. Uh, on the page opposite that, Presto Magic Dry Transfer Games. Uh, 
I know Chris Honeywell has talked about Presto Magics before, so that was interesting to see. Uh, flipping forward here, we get the What's Wrong With This Picture for Marvel Comics uh, subscription once again. Uh, $5 saving certificate for new subscribers featuring Spider-Man and the Hulk and then the Stan Lee uh, $5 bill once again. Had a couple of hodgepodge ads. Um, bullpen bulletins uh, where uh, Stan is talking about um, the epic line and you know the difference between the the oversized books and the regular comics there's a whole bunch of uh, books coming out there's a really kind of plain house ad for moon knight where it just says moon knight if you meet him you're either in trouble or you're going to be with just white text on a black background uh, we do get a um on the warrior's dispatch page we get the little house the small uh, rectangular house ad for Rom. He strikes him out of space and nothing can stop him. We've seen that one before. We do get a hostess ad. We get Spider-Man in the trap. My spider sense is tingling. Trouble ahead. Here comes Spider-Man, boss lady. Just like you said. Never mind the compliments. Drop the net now. I have the feeling things are going to get worse before they get better. Right, webhead. You're going on a one-way ride. How about it? Be a nice guy and let me out of here. Not for a million bucks. How about for some delicious Hostess Twinkie cakes? Lacinius Lil won't like this, but I can't resist the golden sponge cake. Great creamed filling. It's a deal, wall crawler. Sometime later, at Larcinius Lil's lair. You'll be tied up for a while, Lil. Thanks to Hostess Twinkie cakes, the tables, or should I say the webs, have been turned. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Twinkies Cakes. Yeah, this this is pretty terrible. Um, even for a Hostess ad, this is awful. Uh, Larcinius Lil's plan is literally to throw a net on Spider-Man. Let me repeat that. Her plan is to throw a net on Spider-Man. Not a weighted net. Not a net covered with poison. Not a... I don't know. On, on any type of... Technology, it's a net. It's a technology that was invented, you know, thousands of years earlier that clearly Spider-Man can't overcome, except he does, like, immediately. Not even sure why he needs the Twinkies to get out of this one. Why can't he just, I don't know, use his spider strength to tear the net apart? So this is this has got to be the absolute weakest of the Hostess ads <laughs> that I've run into in this uh, the course of reading the Shogun Warriors. Finally, on the back outside cover, um, this is from AMT. It says, the only Star Trek model kits in the universe. It's a wonderful shot of the classic AMT Enterprise from Star Trek The Motion Picture, which I absolutely love. This is a really neat ad. It's got the Star Trek The Motion Picture logo there. Uh, the model itself is all lit up like with a lighting kit, and it's set in a star field. Um, and it's funny because they actually... Uh, they, they, they talk about, to beware of aliens, AMT's the only company that can make authentic Star Trek model kits. So, you know, maybe they're, I'm guessing, you know, recasts and knockoffs even back in uh, 1979 and 80 for this. Uh, they're talking about the Enterprise. It's 22 inches long. And they're also going to be bringing out the Vulcan shuttle and the Klingon cruiser. Very cool. These are, I have seen this AMT Enterprise before, especially for a kit from the late 70s. It is very neat. And it is big, 22 inches. It's a good size kit. So. That's all I've got for Shogun Warriors number 17. I'll be interested to see about the Chaos Wars next month in number 18. Uh, but for now, we are going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with some listener feedback right here on Earth Destruction Directive. You like cheap comic books, right? 
Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the Quarterbin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarterbin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. And we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. Have in my hand, I hold the stack of listener feedback. If you would like to get in touch with Earth Destruction Directive, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com, or you can send me a message on Facebook, Earth Destruction as the first name, Directive as the last name. If you want, you can also uh, shout at me at Twitter, at Jacone is my handle there, and all of these are repeated in the outro for the show. So let's get on to the feedback. Our first email comes from Brightstar Angie, and Brightstar Angie simply writes uh, Lord Zed's Holiday Humbug, and she says, Lord Zed's Holiday Humbug has been removed from YouTube! And um, now for those who may not be familiar with Lord Zed's Holiday Humbug, this was an audio adaption of Alpha's Magical Christmas, which of course was our uh, Christmas Guidance episode for 2014. It was issued either on tape or CD with a full-color storybook featuring screen caps from Alpha's Magical Christmas as well as some other uh, Power Rangers episodes. And the storyline included Lord Zed sending Primator to go fight the Rangers on Christmas Eve, which leads to the story of why Alpha's by himself, because his friends can't be there, because instead of helping Santa, they are fighting Primator. I find it very funny that, of course, we have to use Primator, who is a Zoo 2 monster, as um, Saban reused and reused and reused those Zoo 2 monsters forever, even in things like this, where they could have done whoever they wanted. That is very funny. It does include most of the songs from the special, but specifically drops the Christian ones, so uh, uh, Oh Holy Night, Silent Night are are excluded. Uh, Angie, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. I had seen it. I don't know that... It, I'm trying to remember if I had downloaded a copy of it off of YouTube or not, but just keep your eyes peeled. You know how things are. Once they're out there once, they tend to find their way back. So anybody interested in that, you know, keep your eyes peeled for that. Thank you very much for writing in, Angie. Uh, our next bit of feedback comes from Facebook and comes from Kyle Benning. And uh, Mr. Benning writes, Mr. Jackanetti, did I spell that correctly or is it one T? It is, in fact, two Ts. Good job, Kyle. Anyways, I have been binge listening to your Earth Destruction Directive podcast, and I absolutely love it. I have always dug the insight you bring on other shows I've heard you on when or when you have guest hosted, but have been dragging my feet diving into your podcast simply because I have no past experience or affinity for giant monsters. My exposure is pretty limited to the few Marvel Comics issues that the Fantastic Four guest appeared in for the mensch-penned Godzilla and Shogun Warriors. Other than that, I'm pretty much a giant monster noob. That said, I have absolutely loved the first nine episodes of your podcast. I can't wait to get caught up. The show is very informative. You do a great job of making the show and material penetrable for noobs like myself. Can't wait for more. Your new listener, Kyle Benning of the Legion of Super Bloggers and King Size Comics Giant Size Fun Podcast. P.S. Do you have the Ultraman series on DVD? Uh, let me address the P.S. First, um, 
Kyle, as you uh, no doubt heard from listening to this one, I do in fact have the Ultraman series on DVD, and you too can own the Ultraman series on DVD from Mill Creek Entertainment. Just go to Amazon.com, use via the uh, Amazon link on TwoTrueFreaks.com. You can find the whole series for about 10 11 bucks. It's a great value. You get the whole series in English um, and Japanese with English subtitles. It's a four-disc set. Uh, it does have the typical kind of lousy Mill Creek packaging where all the, instead of it being like an Alpha Ray case, all of these um, discs are in sleeves inside the case. But, you know, other than that, it's it's great series pickup. So if, if you, especially if you enjoyed our coverage of the Ultraman episodes on this episode, go ahead and pick that up. It's, it's a great value. Uh, beyond that, second, um, just want to say, Hey, thanks for listening to the show. I'm glad you're giving it a try. I have heard that from others. That's like, well, I'm not really into giant monsters. And I, you know, so I, and I, I can understand that, you know, you're into what you're into. I try to make the show uh, palatable for folks that maybe only have a passing interest or passing knowledge of giant monsters and, you know, try to relate it to things that everybody can appreciate. And I'm glad you gave it a shot. Uh, the two, uh, I do want to point you to where you can find Kyle on the internet. The Legion of Super Bloggers is, as the name implies, a group of bloggers that like to blog about the Legion of Superheroes. And you can find them at legionofsuperbloggers.blogspot.com. And Kyle's podcast, which is really cool, it's called it's is it King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, where he talks about oversized comics, like hundred page giants, you know, monster size, um, Marvel monster size books, all sorts of those oversized books. Um, in in um, in Rob Kelly's great uh, essay collection book, um, Hey Kids Comics, uh, there's a, a line about how those monsters, those hundred page giants, you felt you could just turn the pages forever and never run out of pages to turn. Uh, and so Kyle covers that kind of book. And you can find that at King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun.blogspot.com. Definitely give those a listen. Kyle, thank you very much for writing in. I'm hoping you're still enjoying the show and that you get caught up. I'd love to hear from you again when you do. Our next bit of feedback is an email it comes from Eric Lamont, and Eric Lamont simply writes, Earth Destruction Directive 36. And Eric writes, I enjoyed episode 36, featuring the coverage of King Kong vs. Godzilla. Chris Honeywell was an excellent guest host. He provided just the right amount of energy, attitude, and insight. I was quite surprised to learn that the story of multiple endings to the film isn't true. Wow. Funny how things like that can persist and perpetuate. I'll be sure to correct people in the future. Luckily, I have no problem being that guy. The additional information you both provided on the production of the film, its performers, and, fingers crossed, the possibilities of a remake, made this a very enjoyable episode of Earth Destruction Directive. I listened to it twice. Well, until we get that Kong-Godzilla rematch, I'll keep them stomping, signed Eric Lamont. Eric, yes, I agree totally. I knew that when I was going to be getting to King Kong vs. Godzilla, I had to get Chris Honeywell involved, just from his love of monkey movies. And, <laughs> you know, the fact that I had already done King Kong Escapes meant that I could not... Um, pass up the opportunity to have Honeywell on for King Kong versus Godzilla, so I'm glad you liked it. And, uh, yeah, you know that thing about that, that's the two endings rumor, it's, I mean, literally it's been going on for years. It's one of those things that, you know, everybody knows that. It, not, like most things that everybody knows, it turns out to be false. So, uh, I mean, it's even in an, a version of Trivial Pursuit has that incorrectly listed, so I think that's kind of amusing. Uh, Eric, thank you very much for writing in. Uh, well, go forth and be that guy. I am often that that guy, and uh, sometimes my being that guy gets me in trouble <laughs> um, online. So I try to temper my that guyness. But you know, we're both that guy. So go forth and uh, that guyness, my friend. Thank you very much for writing in. 
And our last one I've got today, I've, I've still got a few more in the sack, but uh, with these Ultraman episodes always tend to run a little bit long just because we're covering uh, two shows plus the comic. Uh, so the last one tonight comes from my good friend, Mr. Gene Hendricks. Gene Gene, the podcasting machine. And Gene writes in, King Kong vs. Godzilla or How the Monkey Had to Cheat. Luke, my major problem with this movie is the size they made Kong. No way was Kong as big as Godzilla. See this guy's great diorama, and he has a YouTube link here that I will put in the show notes. And um, just just to break out of Gene's email here, the diorama shows King Kong versus Godzilla if they were the correct height from their first movie. So uh, God, Godzilla stands tall, and Godzilla, or, excuse me, and King Kong is uh, you know he's a 25 foot tall ape standing on top of a, a hill. It's actually a really nice little uh, diorama kit. But I will post that in the show notes so you can take a look at that. Getting back into Gene's email. As such, Godzilla would just squash him. And then there's the whole Electro-Kong problem. Is there some little-known subspecies of gorilla that feeds off of electricity? Heck, even if Kong could do that, and let's say that he is, for the purpose of this story, this much Vulture turns away Godzilla, who is nuclear-powered and a heck of a lot tougher than Kong. Sheesh. Don't get me wrong, if I'm in the right mood, I do enjoy this movie, as I do any Daikaiju movie. I also understand the reverence that the Japanese hold Kong in and the spirit in which this movie was made, but there's just no way that Kong would win in a fight if they didn't cheat. All that being said, I will be first in line if Legendary releases a new version of this film. Signed, Gene. And uh, <laughs> I love Gene's argument here because these we've all been there. It's the the the, the uh, you know the, the the classic comic book nerd of who would win in a fight argument here. And they do have to change Kong quite a bit to make this at a level playing field, you know. And um, the. I, the the electricity thing bothered me for a long time. It's only relatively recently that I kind of put two and two together for the thematic aspect of, you know, Kong's roar um, being the sound of thunder, and so the, the thunder and lightning being his element, so to speak, putting that in air quotes. Uh, so that's what powers him up with the lightning. You know, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense because they specifically use the electrical blockade in Godzilla King of the Monsters, and that doesn't work, but it does here. So, you know, you just... I understand where, where Gene's coming from, and, and I, I like, Gene, I do have to appreciate that you say that if you're in the right mood, you do enjoy the movie, because you really do got to turn your brain off for King Kong versus Godzilla, and just look at it as a kid, you know, and just enjoy it uh, as it stands, so to speak. Uh, Gene is very prolific on the internet. If you want to check him out, you can always find his blog, The Hammer Strikes, at thehammerstrikes.com. Uh, then, of course, his show, The Hammer Podcast, which can be found at twotruefreaks.com. The Quantum Cast, where they take a look at uh, uh, the quantum hero Quasar. And Anime Freaks, along with uh, Dr. Bill Robinson, all of those can be found at twotruefreaks.com. Uh, as of recording this, Gene just released a Hammer Podcast episodes about Star Wars Rebels, which is really cool. I've only seen bits and pieces of Star Wars Rebels. I haven't had a chance to really sit down and watch it, but what I've seen of it so far I thought was pretty neat, so definitely check that out and check out all of Gene's other uh, podcast as well. That is all the feedback I'm going to do tonight. As I said, I do have some more in the inbox, but in the interest of this not running on forever and ever, we're going to call it right there. So, what will we have next time on Earth Destruction Directive? Well, we're going to be taking a look at a very unusual little film, and again, on this podcast, that's saying something. We're going to be taking a look at The Last Dinosaur, the co-U.S. Japanese production, which um, turned into a TV film here in the United States, but was released theatrically in Japan. 
And uh, to watch this little bit of late 70s uh, nostalgia, I have to turn to one man. The man who, some say, uh, it goes on more tangents than even I do. And the man that some say might be podcasting in his garage, but we all know that's actually a room. I'm, of course, talking about the legendary Dr. Bill Robinson. And Dr. Bill will be joining me as we take a look at uh, The Last Dinosaur and all of its uh, just really retro glory <laughs> uh last dinosaur is of course available on dvd from uh warner uh, video uh what do they call it water warner premiere i guess it's their on-demand video service where they'll print on demand their dvds and if you look hard enough you can probably find it on the internet so give it a shot if you want and come back next time for dr bill and i to be taking a look at the last dinosaur well we're not going to be covering shogun warriors we're going to focus all our efforts on the on uh, Mason Thrust and his efforts to hunt down a Tyrannosaurus Rex underneath the polar ice caps. No, you didn't hear that wrong. This is a, an oddball film, but I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, I, I love working with Dr. Bill. Uh, if anyone heard our um, co- couple of episodes we did of Back to the Bins not too long ago, I just talking with Dr. Bill is just an absolute blast. So I hope you all will come back and enjoy that. And until next time, keep them stomping. In the world This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, available at twotruefreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I'll read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find the show on iTunes. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave an iTunes review if you want. You can get in touch with the show on Facebook. Just search for Earth Destruction as the first name and Directive as the last name. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Any items you buy during your session on Amazon.com will help keep the lights on, and it won't cost you anything extra. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Oh, my God.
Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible. 